Well, good morning again. As always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. Two weeks ago, we began a series through the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. We heard that first week about the significance of Peter calling Christians elect exiles, telling us that our identity is that we are chosen and beloved by God, but also that we are foreigners and strangers with respect to the culture and the society around us. And then last week, Peter focused in on this theme that is found throughout his letter. It's so prominent in his letter, it's the theme of suffering. And he told us that because we have been born again to a living and secure hope, our suffering isn't a sign of God's judgment, but a tool in God's hand to purify and perfect us. This week, we're going to look at the next section in 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verses 13 through 21. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn there? That's 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. And in this section, Peter introduces another big theme in this letter, the theme of holiness. In verse 15, he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also... Be holy in all your conduct. In in what may be surprising to some of us, God addresses a people who are suffering, who are in pain, with commands that they should live holy lives. He doesn't just bring us words of comfort and sympathy, but He brings us words of action and obedience. And what we're going to see today is that those two things, Comfort and obedience, joy and holiness, suffering and a call to action, those things are vitally connected. Because God doesn't just give us the hope of new lives later, but He gives us the first fruits of that new life right now. So that's where we're going today. That's what God is going to teach us. And as we prepare to hear this word, we know, especially in this call to obedience and holiness, that we don't just need help with our minds, but we need help with our hearts and with our wills. So would you pray with me that God would prepare us to hear his word? Heavenly Father, as we read and hear your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know Your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may come before You in humility and faith and that we might not only be hearers of Your Word, but doers. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." 
And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the Word of the Lord. This morning, we're going to begin by focusing in on that central, that core element of our text today, verses 14 through 16, that tell us that we should be holy in all our conduct. And then we're going to see three ways that God, through Peter, is going to help us pursue that holiness. First, by living in future hope, in verse 13. Second, by living in present fear. And then thirdly, by knowing that you were ransomed by Christ. That's in verses 18 through 21. But first, we're going to start with that core message, that core command today in this section. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 16. So let's read those again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Three times in these verses, Peter tells us that we should live holy lives. He begins with the negative. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That word translated passions there is the word for desires or longings. And so the command is, don't let your life be dictated by the same passions and desires and longings that used to drive you. And then he gives the positive command. But, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then in the next verse, he shows where he's getting this from. He quotes Leviticus. This is said several times to Israel in Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a straightforward command. Don't live like you used to live, but instead live holy lives. But we need to make sure that we understand what God means in this command to us that we be holy, that we live lives of holy conduct. The first thing we need to be clear about is that this command is an aspect of our new identity in Christ. Remember, we began this letter talking about our identity as Christians. We have been born again. We have been given a new life, and with that new life comes a new identity. We are elect, chosen, beloved by God. We have been made part of a new family, this household of God, and we have been given a new inheritance. All of those things are connected with verse 3, that we have been born again. We've been given a new birth and a new identity as Christians. And what Peter says in verse 14 is that part of that identity is that we are now called children of God. Verse 17 says that we call God Father. 
And as adopted children of God, our identity includes a particular way of living. Verses 15 and 17 both refer to our conduct. That same word is later translated in 1 Peter, behavior. In verse 18 of what we just read, we read that phrase, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Ways in that verse is the same word that's translated conduct that we just read in behavior elsewhere. We had a previous way of life. We had a way of conducting ourselves, a way of behaving that fit with that previous identity. And now, because our identity has changed, our behavior needs to fit to change this new identity. Our behavior needs to change, rather, to fit this new identity. We are now God's children, born again to live in His family. And the kind of life, the kind of conduct that becomes God's children, that fits with them, is holiness. We need to be really clear about the direction of that arrow that I just said. It's not that you live a holy life, and because you live such a holy life, you get to become God's child. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the very opposite. You have become a child of God, and because you are a child of God, you are enabled and called into a holy life. It is death to get that in the wrong direction. It makes salvation a work of your own, no longer a work of God. And this helps us understand, this begins to help us understand what exactly it means that God is calling us in to a holy life. This is not our work. This is a benefit of salvation. This is a gift to us that we no longer have to live according to our former passions. The children's catechism that our kids learn in CE asks this in question 22. In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? Does anyone know the answer? In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? You can shout it. Perfect. He made them holy and happy. God made Adam and Eve holy and happy. I I saw a couple for people who whispered it to themselves. God created Adam and Eve originally, without sin, in a condition of holiness and happiness. This is an aspect of God looking at His creation and saying, it is very good. The holy life, this is so important for us to get, the holy life is not just the correct life, it is also the delightful, joyful, and good life. We need to drill that into our heads again and again. Holiness and happiness are bound together. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed, happy, delightful. These things are connected with God's law, with a life of holiness. The problem with legalism is not that it attempts to obey God's law. The problem with legalism is that it treats God's law as a way to earn God's favor. 
instead of treating it like one of the blessings, one of the free gifts of life in Christ. It gets that arrow in the wrong direction. But we need to be very careful that in trying to combat legalism, we don't say wrong and misleading things about holiness and God's law. The Bible teaches that holy people are ultimately happy people. And the inverse, that sinful people are ultimately miserable people. It does not always look like that in this life, but God promises us that the way of holiness is the way of happiness and life, and that the way of sin is the way of misery and death. So that helps us understand what holiness is. It's the way of life that God has always intended for us. It's our way to delight and joy and happiness. But we also need to understand where our eyes are as we pursue holy living. Because we also have a tendency to mix this up. You likely will have heard a simple definition of holiness as different or set apart. And that's not a wrong definition. That's a good definition. That's part of the definition that we gave in our holiness class last fall. However, the definition is very easily misunderstood. Our temptation, when we say that holiness is being different, is to look at the world around us and try to be different. It's to fix our eyes on the way that people live and then try to respond in a way different than the way that they respond. But that is not where the text tells us to look. Look again at verses 14 through 16. The first phrase seems like it might confirm the approach I just mentioned. It says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That sounds a lot like Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world. However, look at what follows in 1 Peter 1. It's not a negative statement about how we are not to live. It's a positive one. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God is the one who has called us. Our holiness is not measured based on how different we are from the world around us. Our holiness is measured based on how similar we are to God. He is where we fix our eyes. He is where we look to see what holy living looks like. We look first to His law, this way of living that He intended for us. What does the blessed man do in Psalm 1? He delights in the law of the Lord. And if you're thinking or maybe saying to yourself, but Mitchell, the law is so abstract and ethereal. I need something concrete to know how to live in holiness. Then look no further to the fulfillment of the law himself in Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels. Look at the behavior and the conduct of Jesus. Look at how he treats people. Look at how he loves people. Look at how he prays and speaks. Look at how he responds to those who hate him. Jesus is holiness in flesh and blood. Remember Peter's statement in chapter 2, verse 21, that we are to follow in the steps of Jesus. He is our model for holiness that conforms perfectly to God's holy law. So that's what holiness is. Is 
We are to live holy lives as God's obedient children. Those who have been born again to new life. It's not stifling, stuffy, holier-than-thou living, but it is delightful, blessed, holy living with our eyes fixed on the Holy One Himself. And if you want concrete, we're going to get very concrete throughout the rest of 1 Peter. Peter is going to talk about what holiness looks like when your husband isn't a Christian. What holiness looks like when you don't want to honor the government. How holiness looks when others mock you. When the body of Christ isn't easy to live with. And when your non-Christian friends are surprised that you don't join them in their sin. So we will get some concrete examples. But this passage, the rest of this passage, takes us in a different direction. It gives us support for our pursuit of holiness. It gives us three supports, three ballasts for living the holy life. The first is found in verse 13. So let's read verse 13 together. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice from that word, therefore, that Peter is drawing on what we read from him last week in verses 3 through 12, that we have been born again to a living hope. It's a hope that can't spoil, perish, or fade. And now Peter turns from that hope to this call to obedience on holy living. And he says that in order to live holy lives, you cannot forget what he said at the beginning of this letter. In order to live holy lives, you must set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you may be asking, why? Why does future hope help me live a holy life now? Remember, the future hope that we have as Christians tells us that the difficulties, the pain of this life, are only for a little while and that the glories of following Jesus are eternal. And what Peter says isn't just to keep that in the back of your mind. He says to set your mind fully, set your hope fully on that grace. One way for us to think about this is to think about the Psalms. The situation of Psalm 73 is actually pretty common in the Psalms, especially the Psalms of lament. The psalmist opens by recalling a time where he almost stumbled. He says his feet almost slipped. And then he starts recounting all the ways that holy living seems pointless and how much the wicked seem to be prospering. And how many of you have been there? How many of you have worked and worked at living in this new life According to God's law, you've guarded your heart from sin, you have resisted temptation, and you feel like it has gotten you nowhere. You look around at others who flaunt their sin. Maybe it's a co-worker who openly deceives and lies to get what they want. Or perhaps they are filled with pride and they boast arrogantly of all their accomplishments. Maybe it's a friend who parades their sexual life in front of everyone else. Or they parade the fact that they party 
and drink, and it seems like they are doing great. They seem to be the happy ones, and we seem to be the miserable ones. The turning point for the psalmist in Psalm 73 is that he goes into the sanctuary. He worships. He hears the word of God, and he says, Then I discerned their end. And he reminds himself that sin will ultimately always lead to misery and death. And that clinging to God and living according to his will always ultimately leads to life and glory. This is a picture of setting your hope fully on the grace that is to come when Jesus returns. It's saying to yourself, I know that this doesn't seem like it's paying off right now. I know that sin seems sweet and obedience seems bitter. But I trust in the promises of God and I know that His path is the path of life. That in His presence there is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is what it means to set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. That's one source of support that Peter gives us for living the holy life. A second source of support is found in verse 17. So let's read verse 17. He says, And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That time, the time of our exiles, is the here and now. It's the time between Jesus' resurrection from the dead and His second coming. In order to pursue holy living, Peter says, we need to live in this time with fear. And so the question is, fear of what? And how is it that living fearfully helps me to live holy? The fear Peter is talking about is the fear of the Lord. Remember, he has just called us children of God, and what he essentially says at the beginning of this verse is, hey, it's an awesome thing that you are able to call God Father. But you need to remember that your Father is also the judge of all the earth. There will be a time where God will judge every man and woman, both living and dead. And while it's a pretty straightforward statement, it's difficult to understand in light of the rest of Scripture. Throughout Scripture, it's clear that the fear of the Lord is an unqualified good thing. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 25 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. The fear of the Lord isn't set in contrast to love, joy, and comfort in God. Instead, it goes hand in hand with those things. But it's the other ways that we use that word fear that gives us a bit of pause when we talk about fearing the Lord. Is this saying that we're supposed to be afraid of God? Are we supposed to be cautious or hesitant when we come to Him? Are we supposed to be on that picture of a legal pardon? Instead, He uses the picture of slavery. The word ransom in verse 18 is most often translated redeemed. It shows up a few times in the New Testament, but in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is everywhere. 
And it is constantly referring to the fact that God has redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. An example is from Psalm 106. It says, So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. But notice in 1 Peter what slave master Jesus has redeemed us from. It's not the superpower of Egypt. It's the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Peter again shows us that sin is not a game. The world around you tells you that sin is freedom. It is liberty from oppression. You are an independent thinker and you are now living your life the way that you want to live. Brothers and sisters, that is not true. Sin is slavery. Sin becomes your slave master that abuses you and demands that you obey it. It holds life and happiness out to you, and then when you reach for it, it takes them back and never lets you grab hold of them. And what Peter says is that Jesus, in his death, paid the price that sin demanded. And the result is that he bought us. We are no longer slaves to sin. Those sins that have plagued your family for generation after generation, drugs, drunkenness, adultery, laziness, workaholism, fits of anger, gossip, you are no longer their slave. Jesus has bought you. And as Peter will tell us again in chapter 2, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You have been redeemed from the futile ways of your forefathers. But you have not just been redeemed from something. You have been redeemed to something. You have been redeemed to a life of holiness and righteousness, a life living the way God always intended for you to live, holy and happy. If you are a Christian, sin is not your master. But like a dog that used to be abused, we still cower when we see sin. We respond like it still has a hold on us. Temptation is hard to overcome. Holiness is difficult. What God is doing through Peter in these verses is equipping you with power over your temptation. When temptation comes... Remind yourself, say it out loud if you have to, that you are not a slave to sin. Sin, I am not your slave anymore. I have been born again to a new life because I have been bought by Jesus Christ. Sin, you are not my master, and so I am not going to obey you. Jesus is my master, and I will obey him. Peter, in the following verses, gives a good bit of detail on just how Jesus bought us, how he purchased us. He says that you weren't ransomed or redeemed with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. This does two things. First, it tells you that your price that Jesus paid for you won't be found to be wanting at some point. 
It's not that Jesus paid for you and then your slave master is going to come back and say, oh, that wasn't enough. No, Jesus paid with an infinite price, with his very life. And then the second thing it does is that it shows us the love that Jesus has for us. He didn't give a small percentage of some humongous bank account that he has. He gave his very life to redeem you. These last two verses seem to break out in praise again, just as Peter did in verse 3. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Beloved, you are not an afterthought. You are not a plan B. God the Father foreknew Jesus from the foundation of the world. Now, go back to Plune CE class last week so that you can look at the beautiful but sometimes complicated doctrine of the person of Christ. But what this is referring to is that Jesus has not always existed. The Son of God has always existed. He is eternally God with the Father and the Spirit. He was begotten by the Father before all ages, as the Nicene Creed says. But the God-man, Jesus, was a plan from the foundation of the world, a plan that would come into effect at a particular time. And what Peter is doing is he is rejoicing that we live in that time. We live in the time where God's eternal plan has come to fruition in Jesus. The eternal and infinite Son of God took humanity to Himself so that He could die. Why? For you. Because He loves you. Because He wanted to redeem your life from the sin that was destroying you. Because He wanted to take you to Himself and raise you up with Him to new life. That you might die to sin and live the holy life of righteousness that is only found in Christ. Beloved, in this time of exile and suffering, you have been called to holiness by your God. In order to pursue that holiness, you must set your hope fully on your future grace. You must live with fear and sober-mindedness, but most importantly, you must live with your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ knowing that He loves you, that He shed His precious blood for you, and that He redeemed you for Himself. Would you all pray with me? Father, we, we have to come to You in praise and rejoice at the amazing grace that is ours in Jesus that we have not earned, that we could not possibly have earned Father, we thank you that you have shed your grace on us, that you have given us these free gifts that are ours in Christ. May we not dishonor your gifts by living according to our old life. Lord, give us strength, give us endurance, give us perseverance that we might follow in the footsteps of Jesus and live this life of holiness and happiness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.